Welcome back to What You Will Learn. My name is Adam Ashton. And my name is Adam Jones. Today, we're taking you through the best bits of The Talent Code by Daniel Coyle. Greatness isn't born, it's grown. A few questions. How does a penniless Russian tennis club with one tennis court create more top 20 players than the entire United States? Good question. Another question for you. How does one humble storefront music store in Dallas, Texas produce Jessica Simpson, Demi Lovato, and a succession of pop music phenoms? One more question. How does a poor, scantily educated British family in a remote village in the middle of nowhere turn out three world-class riders? Yes, there are some certain talent beds probably in every sport around the world, and they're pretty interesting because they create a disproportionate amount of superstars out there. And this is what this book is all about. The Talent Code is all about understanding these talent hotbeds because they're mysterious places, and the most mysterious thing about them is they sort of pop up and start blooming without any warning. Yeah, in the 1950s and all prior to that, there were zero Dominican Republic players in the Major League Baseball, and now they account for one in nine. That's 11% of players are now from Dominican Republic, which seems like a massive stat. One in nine. That's bloody insane. (laughs) That's like a lot, yeah, from this tiny, tiny island. Or if you think about uh, in golf, the first South Korean golfer won a ladies PGA or Professional Gold Association tournament? Is that what they call it? The PGA? Uh, golf. So that's a typo. Oh, sorry. Professional <laughs> Golf Association the tournament. The I should have got that. Venice <laughs> Golf in 1998. But now there are 45 South Korean women um, on the LPGA, including eight of the top 20 players. So that's... Hate it. That's, that's a, a big, big number, growth, man. and that was in ten years because this book was written in two thousand eight or something. So that's that's pretty impressive. So, media coverage around these types of things, um, they kind of treat each hotbed as a singular phenomenon. Like out of nowhere, the Dominican Republic just popped up as a massive baseball nation, but in truth, they're part of a larger pattern. If we go back even further, you have got the composers in nineteenth century Vienna, you've got the writers of Shakespeare in England, you've got the artists of the Italian Renaissance. All these talent hotbeds all throughout history that follow the same kinds of patterns. In each of these cases, the identical questions echo. Where does all of this extraordinary talent come from and how the hell does it grow? There's a six-minute video of a freckly-faced 13-year-old girl named Clarissa, uh, which kind of answers some of those questions we were just asking. There was an Australian musician study by Gary and Jimmy. They tracked the progress over several years watching how students learn music and they were trying to work out how do the good ones get good, how do the shit ones stay shit and how do the best in the world become the best in the world. Now, this little six-minute video had a bit of a bit of a clue. It could have been titled, um, if you were Gary, he would have said, the girl who did a month's worth of practice in just six minutes. Now, a month's practice in six minutes, that's pretty productive. So she's trying to learn a new piece in this, a 1941 jazz tune called The Golden Wedding by Woody Herman. She listened to this song a few times, she liked it, and now she was going to try to play it. She drew breath, she played two notes, da-da, and then stopped. She pulled the clarinet away, she squinted at the paper for a few minutes, she was just had this real puzzled look on her face, and she tried again. This time she played seven notes in a row, and again, immediately stopped. A few phrases, um, pause again, looks to the side, fingers on the notes again, and she imagines the tunes in her head, and she's just fumbling around, she's stuffing up. If you're some parents out there would not give her dinner that night, you'd say you're not you're not doing well at this clarinet business. Um, you know, go and go and run outside or something. Get that clarinet away from you. It definitely doesn't look like music. There's all these stop starts. There's these stuff ups. There's she these looks misses. like she sucks, man. She, she, she definitely looks, like, looks she like she sucks. But oh, big Gary McPherson doing the study. He really gets off on watching this video uh, <laughs> on the. 
from the clarinet lesson side of things, he said, this is amazing stuff. You know, every time he watches it, he sees something new. He says, what's kind of happening is she's got a blueprint in her mind that she's constantly comparing herself to. She's heard the song. She's trying to replicate it. And whenever there's a mismatch, that's when she stops and tries to work it out again. She's working at phrases. She's trying to flow in complete thoughts. She's not ignoring errors. If she hears an error, she goes back and stops and fixes it because she knows what it's meant to sound like. Uh, it's kind of like she's mastering small parts at a time, stacking them together, like kind of like zooming in and zooming out, scaffolding herself to a high level of performance. So these building blocks she's working on are the building blocks of rapid progress and deep learning. And this book is about that simple idea. Clarissa, she's an individual doing the same thing that these talent hotbeds that we've spoken about are doing on a much larger scale. Both Clarissa and talent hotbeds have tapped into this neurological mechanism in which certain patterns are targeted and utilized in practicing certain ways to build new skills. So without realizing, they've really uh, entered the zone of accelerated learning. So like you said, one month in six minutes, that's the sort of ROI you can get with this accelerated learning. And in short, in doing this, you're cracking the talent code. So the talent code, the author says, is built on this revolutionary scientific discoveries involving this neural insulator called myelin. And uh, now some neuro neurologists are saying this is like the holy grail of skill acquisition. Yeah, mate. As soon as this comes out, is it? I've never tried steroids, which gives you muscle or anything <laughs> like that. But if they just inject myelin, after reading this book, I'm going to be pumping myself in <laughs> myelin. That's right. Even if it just clinically just is dangerous. That sounds dangerous. I'm loading myself on <laughs> myelin because, mate, myelin just does sound like the holy grail. It does. It does. They say that every human skill, whether it's playing baseball or Beethoven, is created in chains of nerve fibers carrying tiny electrical impulses. So it's like a, you know, a, a signal traveling through a circuit. And what myelin does is it wraps those nerve fibers, kind of like the way rubber insulation wraps around copper wire. So it makes those signals from the brain to the muscles stronger, more consistent, faster. They prevent the electrical impulses from leaking out and they prevent mistakes. So myelin's kind of wrapping this whole system up to make these neural firings more efficient. It's a great analogy that because without the rubber insulation around the copper wire, there's no electricity getting through. Oh, really? What happens? It just, just stops. Leaks I, out. Think. I, don't, I don't think it conducts all the way to yeah. the very end. So like myelin, if it doesn't wrap around, your electrical impulses of learning aren't getting through either in able to do the skills. So myelin is absolutely critical for, for a bunch of reasons. Yeah. A couple of important things about myelin. It's universal. Everyone can grow it. Most swiftly during childhood, but throughout adult life as well, you can grow it as well. It's indiscriminate. Its growth enables all kinds of skills, both mental and physical. It's imperceptible. You know, you don't know, you can't feel that you're growing myelin when you're doing stuff. It just kind of happens behind the scenes, kind of magically. So big Dan the Man Coil, he went on a treasure hunt. So he's out there trying to unlock the secrets of the talent hotbeds out there around the world, tracking or cracking the talent code, um, uncovering what they did differently and better than everyone else. So he went to nine different talent hotbeds around the world and he found that a lot of them, they were pretty different. They had very little in common and except for the statistical impossibility of the disproportionate number of superstars that these talent hotbeds were um, pumping out. Yeah, he says they were like a tiny field mouse who had not only just learned to roar but had somehow dominated the entire jungle and that's what these talent hotbeds were, these tiny little things in the middle of nowhere that somehow produce these magical uh, world-dominating types of skills. And what he thought, you know, when he was heading out to his, his journey, he thought he'd be uh, 
dazzled. He'd see these world-class power, grace, intellect, all these things. And he said, yeah, they were there, but only about half the time. Half the time, it kind of felt slow, fitful, struggle, stuffing up, lots of mistakes, lots of errors, kind of like that Clarissa fumbling her way through the clarinet, stopping and starting, trying to go back and start again, and all these things that looked pretty messy. It didn't look like world-class athletes. Yeah, fumbling around is is the key there. Again, like old Clarissa, who looks like she sucks, but she's on the, you know, deep down, she's accelerating <laughs> her learning, which is good. So when we see people are practicing effectively, we usually describe it with like, hey, they've got willpower, they've got concentration, they've got focus. But when he was traveling around, when Danny was going around, whether he was watching Bruninho in Sao Paulo, Brazil, trying to learn the famous elastico kick um, on the soccer pitch, all these times, the, those words, willpower, concentration, focus, it didn't actually seem to fit and resonate with what was actually going down in these hotbeds. Yeah, he said the uh, probably a more apt metaphor was like they were trying to climb an icy hill in the middle of winter and instead of taking the safe, comfortable gravel path to the left, they actually stepped to the right on the slippery ice patches on the side and were just trying to trying to sort of climb up the toughest way possible. They were slipping over, they were stumbling. Sometimes they get a bit of a foothold, but a lot of the time they were just sliding down the hill. Yeah, if you go to a skate park or something like that, uh, I think if I learned to skate at the very start when I was trying to learn you learn how to just go up and down a bowl. Mm-hmm. You suck there, but then when you get to the point where you know how to do it, you stop. But then if I was in a talent hotbed, I'd probably actually keep going and, I, and you'd see me stacking a whole lot more <laughs> yeah. than, than, than I actually was. Yeah, that's right. And what this type of uh, practice they're doing where they're intentionally taking the harder path, not the easier path, it causes desirable difficulties. It's the things that, that seem like obstacles in the way, but in clearing those obstacles, you're developing your skill a lot more quicker and a lot deeper. Now, let's go, let's say you go to a party, there's something that happens to all of us and someone pops in and they look familiar, but you've forgotten who their name is and someone just puts you out of the misery and just tells you, hey, it's Susie and uh, just helps save you that little embarrassment in the short term, you know, you get away with it. Yeah. <laughs> but on the other hand, if you're struggling and struggling to, to manage to retrieve her name and you walk out to the door and you go for a walk tr- trying to figure it out, um, as you're doing that, the depths of your memory are uh, pumping in that myelin around that, mm. that little copper circuit about old uh, Susie's name and you're going to carve out a neural pathway and engrave it in your memory. That's right. If someone tells you it's going to be better in the short term, but you're almost definitely going to forget it next time. Whereas if you have to dig hard at yourself and carve those new pathways and engrave it in your memory, it's going to be a lot harder the first time, but you're not going to embarrass yourself next time because you've kind of done the hard yards, that desirable difficulty to develop this new skill. Yeah, so uh, in the, it's going to be hard to say this on the on uh, in, in vocal format, but <laughs> when you're reading it, he's got the two lines of different words and he's got one line where it's uh, one letter missing and you've got to guess what the word is. Yeah. And then the next one is, uh, what was the next one again? <laughs> I don't remember. He <laughs> did something differently. But either way, he made, <laughs> he made it harder the second time and because he made it harder and you had to struggle a little bit, mm. it was much easier to recall. I think that was a better example than the other example we had to say then. We'll go to that. That was a better example or this one's a better nah, one? my example is better. Oh, this your one. one's better? Yeah. Okay, so we skip this one? Yeah. <laughs> so, Mate, I'm making people work for the lesson that's right. out of that story. That's right. If you can so, dig out the lesson, you're going to remember it. You're going to remember it. That's the whole point of that. <laughs> the deep practice here that he calls it, he's, he's termed his own thing, deep practice, um, it's built on this paradox. Struggling in certain targeted ways, kind of operating at the edges of your abilities where you're guaranteed to stuff up, doing those things, even though it looks embarrassing and it feels shit, they're actually making you better. 
So when you're practicing deeply, the world's uh, usual rules are suspended. You're using time a lot more efficiently. Uh, your small efforts are producing big, lasting results. And you've positioned yourself at a place of leverage where you can capture failure and turn it into a skill. So that struggle, when you're feeling that struggle pain that you're going on, uh, it's really the way of nature's way of injecting that myelin until one day there's a, an illegal drug dealer who actually <laughs> gives us an easier way of doing it. But until then, it's all about the struggle. Let's look at the Brazilian soccer team. And if we're trying to describe the talent of Brazilian soccer players, we can measure it or you can name it. You can measure it with the stats, five World Cups, uh, plus 900 or so young talents signed every year by professional European clubs, or you can just name it. Pele, Zico, Romario, Ronaldo, Juninho, Robinho, Ronaldinho, Kaká, Neymar. Uh, you can just point to these guys and just say, these are the ones that are killing it. They're wonderful names as well, aren't they? <laughs> Wish I think I butchered a few of them, but I got it close. Compare those names compared to John, George, Craig <laughs> and Bruce, like bloody hell. <laughs> Um, but if you wanted to see, you could also go and see it. If you just go to Brazil and watch uh, watch the Brazilian team play soccer, you, you're just blown away by it. If you're just chucking on ESPN, particularly some of Ronaldinho's stuff he used to do back in the day, absolutely insane. Yeah, you end up, there's a Brazilian who's in the back corner, they're stuck, there's three opponents around and there's no options, there's no room, there's no time, there's no space, there's no hope. And then suddenly they just do something. It looks like a bit of a dance or a bit of a jig or something, a flick, some kind of burst of speed. All of a sudden... The three opposition just looking around like, where'd this guy go? And they're through and they're already down the other end of the field. Yeah, they're insane. So they're kicking ass around the world. And one explanation for their domination could be the, the old typical nature versus nurture explanations that we all like. But there's a slight problem with this standard explanation. Um, for most of history, Brazil's been really shit at yeah. soccer. They've sucked. <laughs> That's right. You'd think if it was nature versus nurture, there's... That'd be just kind of always good. But it seems like before 1958, Brazil, they'd never won a World Cup. And then since then, they've won 5 or 12. So seemingly out of nowhere, they went from being shit to being some of the best in the world. So there's a better explanation for their rise to success, of course. And, and it's all about Danny's. Danny's uh, talent hotbed term that he's been phrasing here. And he's onto something because he's got a, a story here of his mate, uh, Simon Clifford, was also fascinated by the superhuman, supernatural skills of the Brazilian soccer players. He was a coach him, himself of just a little school team, and he wanted to find out how Brazil developed their skills so he could go back home and help his students develop them too. That is a really committed school soccer coach, isn't it? <laughs> it is. Flew over to Brazil at his own expense. That's right. It sounds like if he was getting money from the school, it sounds like a bit of a junket, a bit of a, oh, yeah. they were just paying for his holiday. But he actually borrowed 8K from his bank to buy a video recorder and bought a plane ticket to Brazil and went over there. He saw that firstly, you know, the Brazilian players, they train 20 hours a week compared to his little English private school boys who were training five hours a week. So that was probably not unexpected. But one thing that he hadn't expected was this strange game he'd actually never seen before. It kind of looked like soccer, but the ball was half the size. It weighed twice as much. It hardly bounced. It was played on concrete Pitches or dirt or wooden floors, not like these nice, pristine grass soccer fields of England. And it was played in like the size of a basketball court, not this massive big field. Yeah, each side had five or six plays instead of 11. So you got a smaller court and uh, there's rhythm, super fast rhythm and blinding speed. And the game seemed a lot more like hockey or basketball than soccer. And if I believe it's right, the normal indoor soccer, you know, you've got... You've got um, walls everywhere, so you kick it and mm. it comes back in. It doesn't go out, so you're not losing 15 minutes here and there. So this game was called Futebol de Salo, which translated to soccer in the room. And the modern version, of course, is called futsal. That's right. And big Simon Clifford from England who went over there, this seemed to be the, the missing link because futsal was just played everywhere in Brazil. Brazil dominates 
uh, the official version of futsal. They've won 35 out of 38 international tournaments, so they're safe to say they're, they're dominant. And it just goes to show that like every Brazilian plays futsal growing up. Yeah, they do. And even the big superstars from 1958, so 17-year-old Pale, he was part of the first uh, futsal team uh, World Cup where he won. Drew Nino said he was 14 when he first kicked his full-size soccer ball on a grass field. But you could um, bet your bottom dollar the decade before that he was going hard on the old futsal. That's right. So one reason futsal is such a great pathway for developing soccer skills is that futsal players touch the balls six times more per minute than soccer players. Because of the smaller field, fewer players, uh, more passes are required. And also the heavier, smaller heavier ball demands more precision. You can't just get out and just boot it down the field when you're in trouble. You actually got to think about a very specific small short pass that you want to do and hit it precisely. Yeah, so here ball control and vision are critical. You always need little tight corners everywhere. So when futsal uh, players play the full-size game, uh, they feel like they've got acres of space right around them when they're in the open pitch. Basically, futsal takes soccer's essential skills and crams them into this small box. So it forces players to get into this deep practice zone, making errors, constantly trying to look for solutions. They touch the ball so many times, they learn faster without even realizing. And then, as you say, as soon as they get to the, the big game of soccer, they're superstars. That's it. So back to old mate Clifford, the man who sold everything and um, <laughs> went all in on, on going to Brazil to try and make his kids learn how to play soccer a little bit better. A lot of troubles at home by that decision. But um, at the end of the day, his soccer team, though, was actually a bit of a success because at first there was uh, he employed these new methods, made him play futsal in small pitches and train a bit more. Everyone in the team's like, what is this weirdo doing? He was playing um, Brazilian music in the background, pumping it up to get everyone <laughs> feeling pretty Brazilian. That's right. They saw these, you know, freckly 12-year-old, pale, pasty English schoolboys trying to dance and, and uh, jump around like Brazilians, playing with this ball that was too small, too heavy, dancing to samba music. And most of the people at the school were like, this guy's absolutely lost the plot. Mm. Yeah, insane, isn't it? But four years later, though, after the years of skill development, the under-14s team from his school won the local championships. Wow. (laughs) Then ended up beating the Scottish under-14. Oh, this is bigger. This is better. Uh, Beating the under-14 national team in Scotland. Scotland. I don't even play soccer. (laughs) Then the Irish under-14 national team. And then one of his players went on to play for England. I'd say that's that's not bad from a bunch of losers to eventually, you know. Well, you could just say teams. you could you could argue that the one person who went on to play for England was so good, <laughs> and that was more causal than uh, old Clifford. You could you but could we'll, say that for sure. We'll go with the Clifford effect, though, <laughs> just for the sake of this episode. It's a big one, isn't it? Like putting yourself in those um, smaller boxes to actually mm. rapidly learn something. I know you've, uh, well, I've been to Urban Surf a lot. I know you were looking at doing it. But yeah, there was, uh, what happened? There was like a hurricane that day and, and I couldn't get there. It was a hur- the first hurricane ever in Melbourne. <laughs> That's right. It's like a really good example because if you try and learn surf in the open waters, mm. you're probably going to get three shots for th- three hours, quite literally at the very start. Mm. But if you actually go to a place like Urban Surf, like a wave park, you're getting 20 waves per hour. So mm. you really, you know, what's that a factor of one per hour versus 20. So, it's a 20x improvement. Mm. That's actually literally how much faster you're probably going to learn how to surf. Oh, definitely. Definitely. And so, that kind of brings us all back to myelin. So, myelin is this, if you look at a cross-section of nerve fibers under microscope, you see a big chunk of nerve in the middle and then you've got these tiny, thin little layers wrapped around it. And some myelin can be 50 layers deep. 
and what we're saying here is that my, this myelin revolution, we've got every human movement, thought or feeling, it's this precisely timed electrical signal that's traveling through and we've got this myelin that's insulating it to make it more efficient. And the point is that the more you practice something, the more you're growing your myelin and the more myelin you've got, the better your, your skill signals are going to be. So the new theory of skill learning is all about our old friend Mylan. The story of skill and talent is the story of Mylan. So the Brazilian soccer team, the more intense the game of the futsal they were playing, the more deep they were in practice, the more they were firing, optimizing their circuits and, and more often and more precisely in futsal than the outdoor game, they're actually getting those old Mylan uh, insulators and wrapping around those electrical signals more and more than everyone else. That's right. So we need this targeted mistake-focused practice like our game of futsal because it's the best way to build a good circuit. You fire it, you know, you, the signal gets fired. There's going to be some mistakes. You go back and fix those mistakes and you fire it over and over and over again and this myelin keeps wrapping around. And then that also kind of answers the question as to why passion and persistence are so important to talent because wrapping myelin around a big circuit takes a bloody long time. And if you don't love what you're doing, you're never going to do enough practice. You're never going to fire that circuit enough times to wrap enough myelin around it to get great. Struggle is not optional here. It's neurologically required. In order to get your skill circuit to fire optimally, you must by definition fire it suboptimally. So you must suck a little Mm. bit. That's by definition what you need to do. And you must make all these mistakes and then pay attention to those mistakes. And then that way you're slowly going to teach your circuit how to learn new things. So whether you're trying to swing a nine iron or strum an A minor chord on the guitar or start with a chess opening move, what we're doing is we're slowly installing this myelin around our circuitry. We're slowly wrapping it. We're slowly firing these neurological signals. And the more we do it, probably the more we stuff it up, as you say, uh, but then correct those mistakes and fire it again the right way, the more we're honing our skills here. We're going extremely academic here for a second. Any discussion around the skill acquiring process must begin by addressing what Coilers termed the HSE. Mm, the HSE, it's a highly scientific discovery. It's this heady mix of admiration and envy when you feel when sudden talent kind of suddenly appears seemingly out of nowhere. Oh, yeah. And uh, what we're talking about here, of course, is the holy shit effect. <laughs> yeah, that's it. The old HSE. <laughs> HSE. A bit like a HSP, but quite different. Very, di- Very H- different to a HSP, actually. <laughs> Very different. The holy shit effect. It's that visceral feeling you get when you hear Pavarotti hitting that big note in Nessun Dorma or seeing Steph Curry swish a deep three-pointer or seeing Tiger Woods hitting this shot out of a bunker around a tree, using the wind to curve it, landing it on the green and then spinning it back at more than 90 degrees back towards the hole. That was in Insane. You actually dropped that on, on YouTube. It's one of the oh, most insane things I've ever seen. I thought that was impossible in golf. It looks impossible. I don't know how he actually got to that spot. Well, it's a good use of um, everyone's time. Take five minutes out of your day yeah. and what would you YouTube? Tiger Woods uh, bunker we'll, shot or we'll something. put it in the link, put on, in the the, link. on the website. We, I think we say that sometimes and we forget to put it in though. <laughs> Probably. I'll try and remember that one. But the holy shit effect is the feeling of seeing talent bloom in people. You thought they're just like you. Tiger Woods is walking around. You're like, hey, he looks a bit like me. Um, and then you just see what he does. And you're like, shit, he's actually a different species to me. <laughs> yeah. We're totally different. That's right. It's like the, the tingle of surprise you get when that goofy neighbor from down the street suddenly pops out and they're like the lead guitarist of this successful band. You're like, what the hell? How did this loser become you know, so good at doing this thing? I thought he was just an, a nerd. 
So what they've done, of course, is they've practiced so hard. They've stuffed up so many times. Ty Woods, not the first time he's done that bunker shot. He's mastered all the sub skills so many bloody times and he's struggled and struggled. He's wrapped so many different uh, neurocircuitry uh, myelin around rubber circuits that he's able to do something like that and you're not. Yeah, the interesting thing about the holy shit effect is that it only operates in one way. The observer, they're absolutely dumbstruck. They're amazed, they're bewildered. They're like, what the hell? How did you do that? But the talent owner who does that, they're just like, yeah, pretty blasé because they know that uh, it's not out of some kind of false modesty or naivete. It's just because they've stuffed it up so many times and then they've probably done this amazing thing so many times just because they'd practiced and wrapped their mile and it just pops out and they're just amazing at yeah, it. Yeah, it just happens automatically, <laughs> quite literally for them. So, if you want to be getting people off on the holy shit effect, there are three rules that you can take on to get better at deep practice to get those moments from other people. Yeah, the first thing we've got to do is we've got to chunk it up. It says a deep practice, it's a bit like exploring a dark and unfamiliar room. You start slowly, you're bumping into shit, you stop, you think, you're feeling around and slowly by slowly and like probably a bit painfully and a few little scrapes on the kneecaps and stuff, the more you explore this space over and over and attend to errors and work out where the bits of furniture are and where the sharp jagged edges are, eventually you've kind of got a bit of an understanding of the room and you can move around this uh, through this mental map a lot more smoothly. So, in the talent hotbeds, deep practice is all about chunking. So, first thing, they look at the things as a whole, then they dot, divide it into smallest possible chunks. And then third, they play with time, slow down the action, speed it up, learn the architecture. There's an old saying from Bruce Lee, I fear the person who's practiced the same kick a thousand times. Because you could imagine once you practice the exact same mini chunk, that you actually get to feel its nuances and install very precise ways of doing things. All of it being extremely quite boring to do a thousand kicks at the same time. <laughs> That's right. Step one of Chunky is is understanding the whole thing. So it was like the Clarissa on the clarinet. She'd heard the song so many times, she knew exactly what it was meant to be like. Uh, and that was absorbing the whole thing. There's another story here about a, the Russian tennis club we mentioned at the start. This one tennis club in Moscow named the Spartak Tennis Club. They only had one indoor court they cranked out this volcanic eruption of talent. They had world number ones. They had a whole bunch of top 10 players. They had Grand Slam winners like Anna Kornikova, Marat Safin, Dinara Safina, uh, Mikhail Yuzny, Elena Dementieva, uh, Dmitry Turnsov. You'll go with that. I think that was a true as But all these things that popped out from this one tiny, poor tennis club and they... Uh, came to dominate the world for this period. So what the coach there does at this Spartak Tennis Club is um, from the age of five all the way through to the pros on the international circuit, they do the drill of um, playing imaginary tennis without a ball. They have this imaginary game where they walk through in slow motion, um, practice rallying with the coach with an imaginary ball. They're walking through the whole thing without having to worry about the specific micro skills. So what they're doing through this imagination, this virtual thing they're building up in their brain, they're building scaffolding of the bigger picture of what they're actually trying to do. It'd be pretty weird, wouldn't it? You're looking at this tennis club and they're just walking around swinging their arm or swinging around. There's no ball and they're just slowly stepping around and pretending to play tennis. It would look absolutely bizarre, but clearly it must have worked. They're getting results there. <laughs> That's right. Secondly, um, we need to break it into chunks. So here we've got a story that Dan, we went to visit the Med Almond School of Music in upstate New York and it's famous for Josh Bell and it's the story we've told a few times with this lad. Yeah, on the old millionaire fast lane, he was the, the undercover playing violin. 
and nobody basically took any notice of him, but he was a pretty good, pretty good violinist, one of the best in the world. You also got Yo-Yo Ma came out of this same school. And what happens is in the first seven weeks when you go to Meadow Mount, students learn at 500% faster than they normally would without these chunking techniques. Because what they do is instead of just saying, here, here's this sheet of music, go and learn it, what they do is they just chop it up into lines and then they just chuck it in a hat shake it up and you just grab out a random one. So you're not going to learn any specific part of the song, just whatever pops up. You learn that in a random order. Then once you've mastered that, you're going to grab another random one and learn it. And then eventually you start stacking these things together. So once they've mastered one chunk, they obviously grab another chunk and get going on that one. Now, thirdly, they slow it down. So the third element, this might sound a little bit strange to actually go things so slow because you might believe that talent hotbeds, it is moving super fast, but it's actually going at a glacial pace at some times. Yeah, they go super, super slow uh, and they mess around with time. Sometimes they'll speed bits up, slow bits down. But as Abraham Lincoln once said, he says, I'm, I'm slow to learn, but I'm also slow to forget what I've learned. My mind is like a piece of steel, very hard to scratch anything on it. But once it's on, almost impossible to rub it out. So going slow allows you to attend more closely to errors, creating a high degree of precision when firing because if you stuff something up, if you just move too quickly on the next thing, you're probably not going to take the time and space to actually let your brain wrap some myelin about the thing mm. you stuffed up to do it better next time. Yeah, definitely. Uh, as uh, Tom Brady's coach said, it's not how fast you can do it, it's how slow you can do it correctly. If you can do it super, super slow and do it perfectly and then build it up from there, it's going to stick. Rule number one, chunk it up, chunk it up. Rule number two, it sounded like a song, didn't it? Uh, rule number two, repeat it. Repeat it, repeat it. So biologically... <laughs> you get a song going. Um, biologically speaking, in terms of growing myelin, there's no substitution for attentive repetition. <laughs> I'm stuck on that repeat it, repeat it. That was a good unintentional joke because you repeated saying repeat it. Yeah. But I remember there was a... Um, that was, a, that was a fully in, intentional. Way back that in season it. one... Uh, yeah. Was it not tiny habits, not atomic habits, mini habits? Stephen, guys, I remember there was a joke about that and neither of us got it. And we asked him about it in the interview and we still didn't get it. Oh. Six years later, I think I finally got that joke. Oh, okay. <laughs> finally. But as you say, you've got to repeat it, repeat it. And no amount of you know thinking, talking, reading, watching, imagining, visualizing, none of these things are actually going to help you learn the skill compared to actually doing it. And the more you do it, the more you're firing those things, the more chance you've got myelin to wrap around it. The easiest way for LeBron James to start missing free throws or jump shots is for him to just not practice for another year. Because when you stop firing these important circuits, they start losing their efficiency. You know, myelin's a, a, a living tissue. If it's not used and maintained, it begins to shrink. Mm. So if the right neurons aren't firing and you don't touch your skill, that myelin's just going to sort of uh, wither away into nothingness. Yeah, Vladimir Horowitz, uh, who was a virtuoso pianist who kept performing into his 80s, he said, if I skip practice for one day, I notice. If I skip practice for two days, my wife notices. If I skip practice for three days, the whole orchestra notices. Jesus. Actually, he said the world or he said the world notices, but I thought that was a bit much considering I've never much. heard of him. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, I wouldn't be able to tell the difference anyway. So that was rule two. Repeat it, repeat it. <laughs> rule three, learn to feel it. Mm. Feel it, baby. Feel it, man. We couldn't. Maybe we should bring the song back just for this episode. Yeah, just for this episode. <laughs> uh, there was a, a famous strings teacher, Sky Carmen, and she taught this class at this famous school. And the class was called How to Practice. She used to play for the Holland Symphony. She first asked all these young kids in her class, "How many of you practice more than five hours a day?" And there was these four nerds at the front of the room, shot their hands up. She's like, "Oh yeah, good for you. I could have never done that as a kid." 
But she said, more importantly, you know, what do you actually do when you practice? Like, if you're playing for five hours, what do you do? Yeah, well, there's a bit of awkward silence here. And one of the kids said, oh, I don't know. I just, just play some tune, play some buck, 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 or something. And um, she says, Oh, yeah, but you just play, don't you? It sounds like you just play, you just tune, you pick a piece you like, you begin fooling around, you're just playing around. Yeah, and they're like, yeah, that's what you do. Yeah, You practice, you play. I said, no, that's absolutely crazy. What do you think sports athletes do? You think they just pull on their boots and run out and start playing a game? She says, no, first they got to warm up their muscles. That's kind of the key ingredient to success. You've got to get some simple skills, you know, just kicking a ball a short distance, get that touch going, get that feel going. She says for musicians, you've got to kind of do the same thing. Your key ingredient is your ear, so you've got to warm up your ear. So she says, first you tune your instrument, then you tune your ear. So what she started doing, she played this uh, a long note on a violin, and it sounded really great, and the kids were enjoying it, and then she just grabbed the tuning peg and turned it just the tiniest bit, and it was just slightly off, and you could see all the kids, their faces were scrunching up. It was very uncomfortable until she resolved it by tuning it back to where it was meant to be. So she was like, that's what you kind of need to do. You need to develop a feel for it. You need to, not just the technical skills, but you're kind of developing your intuition along the way as well. Of all the images that communicate the sensation of deep practice, what we've been speaking about, perhaps the best is babies learning to walk. If I look at my niece or nephew, little Archie, uh, my nephew running around, uh, at first, it took him a while to get there, but he started staking. <laughs> he actually um, started with his tricep thing where he didn't walk. He actually moved with his triceps <laughs> pushing down, but eventually he got there because he stood up and he fell down. He stood up again and he bloody struggled. And it's all, something we all do uh, as babies and that's how we learn Something that's pretty bloody complex, right? Yeah, there was a study that was looking at how can you help babies improve at walking. They discovered there was some obvious things like height and weight and center of gravity and as obviously age as the brain developed. But you said that the thing that mattered actually the most was actually the amount of time they spent firing those circuits. So the amount of time they practiced walking, the amount of times they stood up and fell down and then tried to balance and tried to uh, you know walk around, the more time they did it, the quicker they learned, which yeah. kind of makes sense, yeah. <laughs> That's it. It makes sense. But it's, uh, there's a lot of stop-starts. It's pretty inspirational for, I think, people. If you look at babies learning to walk, they just get up and go again. They actually don't start cursing at themselves either, right? Mm. Um, it's a bit like the way we should approach things. When we go towards our goal, it might be clumsy, a bit wobbly. If there's an uncomfortable feeling... A lot of sensible people might feel like they should try and avoid it, but you, if you're trying to learn like the people in the talent hotbeds, that struggle is something to lean into. Yeah, these staggering babies, they embody some of the deepest truths about deep practice, about developing skills in that to get good, you've got to be willing or probably enthusiastic about being bad in that the road to royal skill is all about taking baby steps. Mm-hmm.